It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's bring in Sophia Song, Matt. Uh, she's a global cities leader for Gensler. Get a sense of kind of what this big infrastructure plan uh, means for the cities in this country. Sophia, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, a, a, a big, big number on that bipartisan infrastructure plan. What does it mean for big and small cities across the United States? Uh, first of all, thanks so much for, for having me. Uh, I think the bill is a great first step towards being really being transformational for, for cities. I think the impact will be seen differently depending on the city that we're talking about. Um, but I think we need to keep in mind that only only half of the infrastructure bill is actually new spending, while the other half is what we've already been spending just to keep up, keep up with maintenance and backlog of projects. And so it's still not enough to close that $2.5 trillion infrastructure investment gap that's been growing since the 70s. It won't solve all of our infrastructure problems across the nation, but it's a great first step to, to closing uh, that massive gap. Uh, beyond what, what the is what is the answer, Sophia? You know, I, I talk to a lot of people, um, you know, Wall Street uh, women and men, but from both sides of the aisle or even apolitical, and they all say we need to spend a lot more on infrastructure. But you know, it can't all come directly from the um, Jerome Powell's printing presses, right? There's got to be another way. Yeah, it, it's not going to be this infrastructure bill alone. You know, since the 1970s, it, it's it's actually been an underinvestment in the U.S. It, it, the you know inve infrastructure investment in the U.S. has been declining since the 70s, which is very different from other countries, especially wealthier nations. We invest less in infrastructure as a percentage of our GDP than many other first world countries, um, and so when we're talking about you know, the impact on these cities, you know, some cities will see greater impact than others. You know, our most recent uh, Gensler City Pulse, which we actually released just yesterday, it shows that cities, these emerging cities like Austin, Atlanta, Denver, and Charlotte, these cities have seen explosive growth, but don't have the infrastructure to keep up. And so that growth is coming at a cost. They're dealing with traffic congestion, bad roads, bad bridges, and airports that need to be modernized. And so the bill provides rising cities an opportunity to address these issues. But to close that gap, I mean, we're, we're going to need, you know, a lot more investment. But this is a great first step. Sophia, talk to us about a 
something like a public-private partnership. What's the role for uh, private enterprise in infrastructure? It can't just be the U.S. government kind of doing everything, can it? Yes. So, so what's interesting about this particular bill is that it actually creates space for private investors um, to join government efforts, especially projects that are over $750 million. And so when you include the private sector, you actually, you actually build in efficiencies um, where, you know, greater efficiencies than, than contracts that where the government is stuck with. Greater you know, efficiencies than no efficiency at all. I like <laughs> right, it. Right, exactly. I like it. Uh, what do you think about you know to me and I don't I'm gonna get flamed probably on Twitter um, I've, people have been calling me a, a bleeding heart liberal lately but to me it makes sense <laughs> uh, to support you know something like childcare as infrastructure because you know working parents need to put their kids somewhere if they want to be able to get in a car and drive on a highway to a job at an airport or whatever does does, does that make sense to everyone or no. I, I mean, it makes sense to me, but that's not in this bill. That's in that bill. No, back it's in the new Build Back Better back. bill. But yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things now that we talk about as infrastructure that are not just roads, bridges, ports, airports, right? Um, it even goes as far as to uh, say, you know, like nutrition counts as infrastructure. Yeah, I mean that's what's what's so unique about this Build Back Better bill because they are specifically outlining a social equity infrastructure um, infrastructure bill. All right, Sophia, thank you so much. We appreciate that as always. Sophia Song, Global Cities Leader for Gensler. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Again, I don't know what the heck's going on with uh, oil here. Up 1.3% today after being down uh, as much as 4% earlier this morning. So some big, big swings. Let's bring in somebody who does this commodity stuff. Uh, Will Rind, Chief Executive Officer for Granite Shares Advisors. Will, what's going on with oil today? <laughs> well, um, I think it's really just a reaction to um, what we saw over the last couple of days, which is, a pretty significant down leg um, on the back of the the new uh, COVID variant, um, and I think that you know that coupled with probably the news out of OPEC Plus that they continue or will continue with their plan to to put the four hundred thousand barrels uh, on the market uh, per month starting January gives a bit more stability to any concern that there might be more barrels put onto the market than that. Is there any? You know, Critty was talking to us earlier about a market that looks like investors will use any excuse to sell. And granted, COVID is very serious. We don't want to make light of any of the new variants, but it does look like a very strong reaction to something um, we don't know a lot about yet. No, absolutely. I think that that was, you know, you could arguably say that across the market, but whether you're talking about 
you know, stocks or whether you're talking about um, commodities. But it was just a broad, I think, uh, rejection of risk um, while you know the uncertainty was there um, around news of this new variant. But I think as we start to get more data on it, um, and like you say, you don't want to make light of it, but um, the more that I think people get comfortable that it's not going to end in another lockdown. Of course, we don't know that yet. But um, if the assumption is it's not going to, we're not going to go back to where we were, um, then I think that, you know, the oil price, you know, commodities and the global economy can continue to, to sort of truck on here. So, Will, give us a sense of, you know, kind of OPEC um, again, where is Russia vis-a-vis -vis OPEC plus are there? Are they still kind of a wild card out there or is Saudi Arabia still kind of really directing things? Saudi Arabia de definitely is the main player. I think that, you know, like I said, the, the 400,000 barrels that um, were telegraphed to be put onto the market, this is a, you know, in gradually increasing production from the record uh, cuts that we saw last year where they cut 10 million barrels um, a day from production. And so clearly, you know, with the prices at these levels, um, not just OPEC, but other oil producing countries would like to put more production on the market. But they've obviously got to balance that with with the demand um, that we're seeing. So right now, the robust the, the demand is robust. And, you know, we've gotten to a position where we had $80 oil, you know, in a world that's still not open. I mean, people forget sometimes that you know, major countries like China other Asian countries still not open really for all terms and purposes. So I think if we're talking about you know getting back to a world which is looks more like 2019, where we could travel everywhere and um, we had the same kind of you know free flowing commerce and trade, then I think we're talking about an oil price that's uh, materially higher than where we are today. What about the other moves that we're seeing in um energy commodities. I mean, I, I'm here in the heart of Europe where it's getting colder and gas prices are extraordinarily high. Um, is that linked to the oil issue or is it all about, you know, Nord Stream and a, a lack of electricity generation? How do you see that? Yeah, it, it's not so much, actually, funny enough, it's not so much linked to oil at all. It's much more of a um, much more of a, a phenomenon, a European-based phenomenon regarding supplies and constraint of supplies um, that are specific to some of these European countries. Um, you know, throw in also the the, the move to renewable uh, power, and perhaps you know some of that uh, happening maybe too quickly, uh, resulting in a situation where there's just not enough uh, energy that's being generated from renewable sources, and so. Uh, governments are having to, to rely more on you know, fossil fuels, um, but that's sort of colliding with this perfect storm of uh, you know, supply not being there um, in, as expected as, as we sort of recover from COVID. By the way, Will, do you, you know, at Granite Share Advisors, do you like this kind of volatility? Because um, you're in demand as well right now. People need your advice. Th that's right. I mean, I think that the, you know, I would say we probably favor volatility up until a point. I mean, clearly we don't want, or, or I think for anybody that manages money, you know, don't want anything to, to be too volatile. But like you say, I mean, there's a point where um, the market is moving around and people do want uh, exposure to these types of assets. And certainly they do want to know, you know, what's going on because understanding 
know, what's happening in the right. commodity market. I think you know, un, un, that sort of underpins everything. It's underpinning the inflation that we're seeing right. um, in the global economy. And so really kind of understanding the direction of travel is key for, for not just yep. you know, commodities, but I think for, for everything people are doing. All right, Will, thanks so much for joining us. Again, we always appreciate your thoughts. Will Ryan, Chief Investment Officer of Granite Shares Advisors. Matt, I mean, for lack of a better scenario or analysis, I'm calling it buy the dip. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, buy the dip is a strategy that seems to work, but it I looks mean, like sell the news is something investors really want to do. I think Kriti Gupta made a great point earlier when she uh, – when she talked about the drops that we've seen, the drama of the drops that we've seen compared to, you know, news that seemed to lack that drama. Again, not to underplay the virus or the new variant because we don't know enough right. about it yet. It could be, you know, terribly uh, damaging variant, but so far it doesn't look um, like something that's going to affect the global economy that much. And yet we had a 900 point sell off on the Dow on Friday. We had um, a huge turnaround yesterday. So the question I think is, why are investors taking advantage of any headline, especially, you know, yesterday we sold off after the headline crossed the Bloomberg terminal at, I think it was 1.42 p.m. New York time. We had a headline that said, uh, we've discovered one case of Omicron in California. We knew that there would be a case or dozens or hundreds or maybe even thousands of cases of Omicron in the U.S. And yet, uh, Mr. Market took advantage of that and sold hard. Right. Right. And then uh, here we are today. And you you mentioned uh, Bloomberg Markets correspondent, Kriti Gupta. And guess what, Matt? She's back in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Kriti, what are you you seeing out there? I mean, again, I I went to business school. I spent a lot of time on Wall Street, and I got nothing better than buy the dip. Um, Well, sometimes, Paul. So I've learned. This was one of the first (laughs) lessons I learned when I was on the Markets Live team by former traders. They said sometimes the answer isn't fundamental. Sometimes it's literally people are trading because they trade and they yep. want to trade. <laughs> like, And and uh, not to, to simplify too much, but it quite literally is by the dip because, and here's why, uh, we're not just saying that to get out of a reason, but the, your, your, your tell here is going to be the VIX because you haven't had a spike in the VIX like this to I think a 32 handle going all the way back to January when they were starting to see some of those hedge funds getting uh, really just burned by those shorts against the retail trader and that entire kind of meme mania that was happening. And if you remember going back then, or even going back to March 2020 on a bigger scale is that when you see volatility, one day it's green, the next day it's red. This is a very normal reaction on that front. And especially as we go into the holiday season where a lot of people are essentially closing out their books, they're rebalancing. You're also waiting for, I think about two weeks for the next FOMC meeting. And on top of that, you're waiting once again for two weeks uh, for more data and more information on this variant in particular, which we are still getting contradicting information on. So. Right now, and I think for the foreseeable future, and I mean for the next couple of days, you're going to continue to see this volatility where you see moves in the market that just don't make sense. But then eventually, when we do have more information, those correlations are going to come back together and there will be a very clear risk on or risk off narrative. Right now, we're just not there. It was also interesting that the Fed didn't react as dovishly, at least in the Q&A portion of um Jerome Powell's Senate testimony, as maybe the market had anticipated, right? Because we got that hawkish pivot at the same time as 
the market seemed to be a little bit on edge about coronavirus again. Yeah, and you know, I actually went back and read the exact wording of, of Jay Powell this morning, and he used a lot of maybes and coulds yep. and really a hedged response. He didn't say, we are tapering at a faster pace. He said, we could and we might. And that isn't something that we didn't know from the last FOMC meeting. In fact, we haven't actually gotten the uh, actual number or the actual asset purchases for January. So we knew there was always going to be this question mark that the pace from for January would completely change. And he's just reiterated that in his testimony. So once again, it's not new. I think what is new, though, is the way the bond market in particular is pricing it. And the biggest part of that is the curve flattening you've seen really accelerated in the past couple of days because you saw essentially the five 30s curve uh, kind of come down, kind of flatten a little bit uh, for the last really, I think, two-ish months if you look at the chart. But if you compare that to what you're seeing in, say, the equity market, this is a really important comparison because essentially when, for those folks who aren't tuned into the bond market, the curve flattening just means that you are not paid as much of a premium for taking on that extra time risk. If you apply that logic to big tech, which is also a very uh, long duration asset essentially, or has been trading as such, that's not exactly a good sign. And right now you do have that disconnect between um, stocks in that regard, and tech stocks in particular, as well as uh, the bond market. The question is, when those two connect, is it the bond market that kind of becomes more risk on, more and steepens a little bit, or is it the equity market that gets dragged down uh, by big tech? Yeah, and it's interesting to see how the markets are reacting to that big, big pivot um, by Fed Chairman Powell uh, earlier this week. Again, we had that uh, sell-off. Um, but again, if, if we're, the market was looking for just reasonable signaling to get you to a, a, a spot of, okay, I kind of have a feeling of how this thing is going to go, he certainly gave it to you. Yeah, it really did. And, and what, what's tricky about right now, though, is that uh, and I think this is why there's so much emphasis on tomorrow's payrolls report in particular yep. is because uh, anything could happen. And if you start to see the payrolls report come in, the market is planning on interpreting this as, well, this is permission for, for Jay Powell and the Fed to just say all eyes are on inflation and that means tapering and that means rate hikes. And that's a narrative that can spiral very, very quickly on one data point. So that's going to be a spot where you might see. Uh, some pretty drastic moves. All right, interesting. We will certainly have wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the jobs report as we do every month here on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. We live for that kind of stuff. Kriti Gupta, Bloomberg Markets correspondent, uh, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, and again, full coverage tomorrow of that jobs data, which as Kriti mentioned, uh, will be a key data point for this Federal Reserve. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Let's check in with a longtime contributor to Bloomberg Markets, Hugh Johnson, Chairman, Chief Economist at Great Point LLC. First of all, Hugh, what is the Great Point LLC? What happened to Hugh Johnson Advisors for like a gajillion years? Well, we, yeah, that's a good question. We merged uh, our company with a company called Bender Lane, which was a family office business, and then we decided to have to give it one name for the two. But we've kept uh, Hugh Johnson Advisors as a, as a division of, and I'm sort of the Chairman Emeritus of Great Point and the Chief Economist at Great Point, and I'm also the 
As best I understand it, the, the chairman of Hugh Johnson Advisors and the chief economist of Hugh Johnson Advisors and the chief uh, chief um, investment officer of Hugh Johnson. Well, that, all right, we're just going to go part. chairman. Yeah, we're just going to go the chairman. Um, and everybody knows you yeah, by Mr. name. Mr. Chairman. Yeah, <laughs> the chairman. That's cha- fine, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, that's good. Mr. Chairman. Like so, Hugh, what, what do you make of this world we're living in now? I mean, it's been such a crazy 20 months here mm-hmm. with the, the the pandemic and the economic disruption and, and now the reopening. But it just seems like, you know, there's one uh, monkey wrench thrown in after another, and it's got to be tough to kind of forecast where this economy is going. What are your best thoughts at the moment? Well, the best thoughts are really, number one, is you get some surprises thrown at us, and that's a part of financial market history. And, of course, with the the COVID-19, the kind of surprise we've been sent with Omicron right now, that's a surprise. It causes a great deal of volatility. That's one surprise. And the second surprise, of course, is some of the comments made by Chairman Powell, which seem to move up the time at which they're going to begin to taper, and then, of course, the time they're going to begin to start to raise interest rates. These are surprises, create great, a great level of volatility. And I would just urge all investors to just uh, try to look through all of that volatility, and we'll start to get some real answers on COVID. We'll get some real answers on monetary policy over the course of a little bit of time now. But let, let those things settle out and recognize. And the more important thing is to recognize, look, we are in a cycle, a stock market economic interest rate cycle. It's very normal by past cycles. We're at the 20-month mark. We're really not far into it. And really all of the kind of the levers, when you look at leading indicators for the economy, you look at the yield curve and what it tells you about what the economy has in store for the next 12 months, uh, it's still very positive. The cycle has further to go, and it's going to have a little bit of volatility created by these issues, these exogenous, unexpected issues along the way. You just got to just got to put those on the back burner and, and make sure you pay attention to the fact the underlying cycle and where we are in that cycle, and then make your investment decisions, asset allocation on the basis of that. Yeah, we had a great story by Matthew Bosler a couple of days ago about how fat corporate profit margins are. We haven't seen mm. margins this fat since the 50s, and yet it looks like investors uh, – current. Oh, so you've got the pajama investors, the pajama traders who <laughs> buy the dip for us every night. But it does look like um, sell first, ask questions later is the afternoon mantra. You know, you get you have a group of investors. There's very volatile, price-sensitive investors, and that's not all of them. That's a really a small group of them. I mean, they we're talking about 10% of all the investors that are involved in these markets that are just extremely edgy, and they create a lot of the volatility that you're seeing because they respond to all of the news that comes out. And I'm just saying, you know, okay, that's fine. They're going to be investors like that. There always have been. There always will be. But I think the majority of investors, quite frankly, are a little bit more sensible, are not caught up in that kind of volatility, and that's exactly what they should do. They should, you know, basically set their portfolios on the basis of what is really going on or what the underlying fundamentals, the underlying cycle is doing. And and that's really the most important thing. So, don't get caught up in that day-to-day volatility, even though I'm sure all of us kind of emotionally do get caught up in it. All right, Hugh, you've got more than 40 years of experience in this game here. What's your outlook for 2022? Uh, it's positive, but you've got to keep in mind, I think, one thing that's sort of a basic fact, and that is since the bottom in 2009, the average annualized rate of return has been over 18%. Look, that's just, that's just a big number, and that's not going to continue. So my outlook is positive. In other words, I think the economy 
uh, is going to continue to expand, although it's going to slow. I think that same thing's true of earnings. And so you should maintain you should maintain a positive uh, view of the equity markets. In other words, a meaningful allocation to equities. But recognize one important fact, and that is we're going from a high return environment. That's 2020 for sure. Um, and we're going to a low return environment. My outlook or prospects for 2022 are, quite, quite frankly, a low three to five percent single digit return. Mm, okay. Uh, don't worry about that because I think you're going to be. I'm going to be wrong on earnings. Earnings are going to come in higher than I'm expecting, in which case the market will do a little bit better than I'm expecting. But don't look for anything more than single digit returns, and equities will outperform fixed income. So you should. Over allocate to equities. All right, Hugh. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Hugh Johnson, Chairman, Chief Economist, and a bunch of other stuff at Great Point LLC over 40 years uh, in the business. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.